Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles, the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. This is officially episode two. Man, I never thought that we would actually make it this far. What about you, Corey? Yeah, it's uh, hard for me to even imagine the fact that we got this off the ground and much less recorded one episode. We're into our second, so I'm feeling good. I am as well. Yeah, I'm actually really excited about where we're going, what we're going to be doing today in this particular mm-hmm. podcast. Before we jump into it, though, I think it would be a good idea to go over just a little bit of what we talked about last week, just as a general recap. So if you guys were listening and paying attention, you probably heard us make the very controversial statement that the Bible is, in fact, a book. You're probably scratching your heads going, well, it has pages, it has a cover, and it has text. So, duh, right? The Bible is actually meant to be read in a specific way. That is, it is actually presenting itself as a narrative, meaning that from cover to cover, from the beginning to the end, it is presenting a unified story that it invites us to then become a part of and appropriate into our our faith walk, if you will. And here we are. Uh, Corey, do you have anything else to say about the, the recap from last week? No, uh, I think that's a great recap. Again, if you guys uh, didn't tune into week one, um, I definitely encourage you to go there. Um, just because we, we looked at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, and the end of the Bible, Revelation, and saw the uh, themes started in Genesis. John, the author of Revelation, was very um, clear in trying to essentially copy those points and finish those themes, saying, I understand that Genesis was the beginning, and this is the end of the book, right? And so... Uh, we see that there is um, clear intention from our authors and that they realize that they're not just writing their own individual books, but they're writing and adding into Scripture, right? And so that's where we left off last week was comparing those two. And, and if you guys, um, whether you listen or not, I would encourage you to do that exercise yourself. Um, just compare those two texts, Genesis 1 through 3 and the last three chapters of Revelation and it is such a cool exercise. Yeah, um, so we talked we- about last week, didn't we, where, you know, if you are in a high school English class and you wait till Thursday to write a paper that's due on Friday, you would pick up your book if you haven't read it yet, right? And you would turn to the first chapter, read that real quick, and then turn to the last chapter and read that. And then from there, you'd probably write your essay without ever having read the middle of the book. And you'd probably get a pretty close approximation to understanding what the book is actually about. Isn't that right? Yeah. I I love that you always take us back to that last minute uh, prep, trying to get that book report and just to stress everyone out. It's it's true though. Yeah. um, It's pretty much where I'm at with every moment of my life. So that's exactly why I can relate to that. No, totally. That's what you do. If you don't have time to read the whole thing, you read the beginning and the end. And it's true for the Bible. It's true for just about every story. Um, you might miss like how um, the conflict that was created was figured out. But in the resolution, you'll get some sort of hint to it. Yeah. That's a good point. 
Awesome. Yeah. And so the other couple things that we did last week that I'll go ahead and recap on uh, just because this is only the second episode of the podcast is we read our mission statement and our purpose statement. Now to reiterate, I'll just read those real quick just so you guys know where we're coming from, what our purpose is in this, in case you missed last episode. So our mission statement is to create a podcast that's dedicated to presenting the Bible as a unified story. We're trying to aid our audience in seeing the authorial meaning within the biblical narrative, and that is a major point that we also stressed last week, that there is authorial meaning within the biblical text. We really believe that. In contrast to a lot of postmodern ideas, if you've read any of these postmodern authors that have talked about text, meaning, authorial intention, you'll know that a lot of them are really calling into question this whole idea of whether or not books actually contain meaning or whether it should be the author, or excuse me, the uh, the reader who's actually adding the meaning back in on the reading side rather than the author who added the meaning in. And instead of, of uh, endorsing that, we heavily believe that, like Corey said, the, the human authors who are writing this added meaning. They knew that they were incorporating their works into scripture. They added meaning. They wrote it in such a way that this was meant to be created into a corpus. And and then God on you know the grand narrative side of things added his meaning through the human authors. Now our purpose statement is to build up believers in their understanding of the biblical story by orienting our audience towards a narrative approach to the scriptures. And that's exactly what we what we hope to do. That's what we're going to jump into today. Uh, before we jump into the text, I think the last thing that I wanted to say anyway was remember the four steps of Bible study methods that we talked about last last week. That is seeing, understanding, sharing, and responding. So when we approach the text, the first thing we are going to try to do is we are going to ask ourselves, what is the text actually saying? We're going to take our presuppositions as best as we're able, and we're going to set them aside. And instead, we're going to actually look at the text and include ourselves within the narrative world so that now we are no longer living in our world, but instead are allowing the words on the page to build a world around our eyes that we are then focusing on and asking what is going on in this narrative world that's being set up. And then that leads into the second point, which is understanding, which is once we see what's actually there in the text, we're then going to seek to understand how it fits into the narrative world that has been pulled over our eyes. Then we're finally going to get to sharing, which is often the point that most people try to jump to initially, which is the the point at which we start actually asking the question, what is the timeless shared truth that the author has actually included here by telling the story in this way, by including the poetry, by uh, including the discourse, what, whatever. What is the author actually wanting me as a 21st century reader to understand through this particular story? And then finally responding. How? So what, basically? How, how does this affect you or how does this affect me? And so those are the four steps. We're going to be doing those today. And that's all I have to say before we jump in the text core. Do you have anything else that you want to add in here? No, I, I think that's... Uh a great thing to keep in mind, and I think we should get into it. I agree. We're going to go ahead and we're going to jump straight into Genesis, the book of the beginnings. Uh, With Genesis, the thing that I really like about Genesis is the fact that Genesis really does set up 
like I said, that narrative world for you. When you get into Genesis 1, you are immediately engulfed into the story. Now, we had brought him up last week, but a very fantastic scholar on the subject of biblical studies and on the topic of hermeneutics, the way that we actually approach Scripture, John Salehammer, uh, the late professor, he says that Genesis, particularly Genesis chapters 1 through 11, are a fantastic introduction, not just to Genesis as a, a single book, but to the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Those are all the part of the Pentateuch. You'll hear us also refer to that as the Torah. Uh, but basically, Genesis sets up the very beginning of the Pentateuch, and then the Bible as a whole, obviously. So he says that they set the stage for the narrative of the patriarchs, which happens in Genesis 12 through 50. We'll get into that later, uh, as well as they provide an appropriate background for understanding the central topic of the Pentateuch, which we'll come to find is Sinai. So the Sinai count in Exodus. So nearly every section of the work displays the author's theological interests, which can be summarized in two points. So first, he intends to draw a line connecting the God of Sin the Sinai covenant uh, with the God who created the world. So he wants to, to connect, that is the author of, of Genesis here, he wants to connect the God who the Israelites are going to eventually meet at Sinai with the God who actually created the world. Now, second, he intends to show that the call of the patriarchs and the Sinai covenant have their ultimate goal as the reestablishment of God's original purpose of creation. Now, eventually, this creation narrative that we're going to get into today, it gets a little muddied. Uh, and that's exactly what any narrative would do. You have the initial setup, and then you have the conflict. So uh, basically, what Salehammer here is saying is that ultimately, this proves the, the biblical covenants will eventually become a, a way for uh, us to get to this new creation. Now, we don't want to give too much away, so I'll go ahead and stop the quote there. Let's go ahead and get into the text. Corey, take it away. All right. Let's look at Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. And it says, in the beginning, by the way, beginning, that's one word in Hebrew. So th this, the name of this book and the way that Hebrew books would get their name is um, the first book of it, or the first word of the book, which here is Bereshit, which is in the beginning or in the head of. So here in the book of beginning, as Dylan kind of alluded to earlier, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this is amazing. That There's so much happening in just the first two lines of Scripture. In the very first line, in the first five words, really, in the beginning God created, the author is facing you, the reader, with a question of faith and saying, do you believe this? Do you believe that there is a God who created everything? Um, there's not very many books, books that form worldviews that um, have an origin story. Um, a, a lot of uh, religious books just uh, go over different rules and whatnot. Um, but this is saying there is a God who created everything. All right, so this isn't just wisdom of how to follow 
a God or follow a will do. Here's the origin. And now you, the reader, in entering into the worlds of the text, are you going to read believing this first statement that there is a God? You have anything to add to that, Dylan? Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, it really does introduce this idea that it, it presupposes that God is there. And that is a point at which a lot of people in today's society would diverge from this text in the sense that they wouldn't begin with that assumption. But this is clearly stating that in the beginning, there was the beginning, the beginning of the book, the beginning of the narrative world that it sets up. In this narrative world, God. That's the first thing the text says. In the narrative world, God. And not only God, but God created now, what did God create? He created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, you get the main character set up straight away. So remember, again, we're going through the Bible as a narrative. That means we're looking at it as literature. You know, if you are actually reading, let's use last week's example, the Fellowship of the Rings and the Lord of the Rings, the character that it sets up, you know, you get Frodo, you get Sam. Well, here, the character is God, and he is doing an action. He's creating, and he's creating the stage, if you will, that the rest of this narrative world is going to be set up on, and that is the heavens and the earth. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And we kind of know the story. So one thing I want to say is, um, instead of just fast-forwarding in your mind of like, oh yeah, I know the days of creation, um, let's not treat this as like a, a memory exercise. Let's look at what the author is trying to teach. He's, he's trying to teach us a lot and there, there's so much theological depth in each line we'll, we'll find that um our authors are very intentional uh, i say authors to mean that the human authors and god who partners with the human authors we believe that um, it is god who inspires a human author and they mean the same thing right the meaning of the author is the meaning that god intended all that to say god creates something out of nothing, right? So the, the beginning of time of everything that we know of, God creates it. And then he has this blank canvas that he created and gives us a picture of this blank ca uh, canvas, which is um, now the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, right? So there's waters and we see God's spirit there, um, but there's chaos. So we see that, um, you know, something big that we'll see later on just mentioned now is that um, the ocean, the sea represents chaos. Chaos meaning um, just without order, right? It's, it's formless. It is void. And we're going to see God bring in order um, through these six days of creating and even the seventh day of rest and something else just to mention as far as we're, we're talking about characters and and what god is doing um, in the beginning we see god creating we see the spirit of god hovering over the face of the waters and then verse three and god said let there be light and this is something that john picks up on in his gospel it starts with like a little Genesis recap and twist from it. it says in the beginning was the word. And so John is referring to here that God created things through word. 
And John goes on to say that the word that is the God who is creating, um, that word is Jesus. So within the first three lines of scripture, we actually see God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit there from the very beginning. I, I know some guys uh, don't want to highlight that, but that's what tons of authors throughout the Bible say. I, I could go on and on about other biblical authors pointing um, to all members of the Trinity being at creation, um, but John chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 8 points to the Spirit being there. When we think of God creating, we usually think of God the Father. So again, we see the Trinity here, and, and uh, we will continue to pick up on this theme of the Trinity and seeing the Trinity throughout Scripture. Anything else before we get into the first day, Dylan? I do have one other thing to say, and that is as we go along, we're going to be introducing particular themes, especially considering the fact that Genesis, as we've already discussed, is the introduction book. It is the book that is kind of designed to create for you the narrative world, create, uh, in <laughs> such a way that you... <laughs> Um, Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in, in, in such a way that, that you are introduced to these themes that are going to be coming up all over the Bible, and we're going to be referring back to a lot of these themes. Some of these themes we'll spend a little bit of time explaining here. Some of these themes we'll just gloss over, but that doesn't mean they're less important. We might then, when we get to another book, when that comes back up, We'll jump to them. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he likes to call uh, a lot of verses in the Bible hyperlinks, which I have appropriated. I think that that is an amazing way to think of it, particularly in today's day and age, where a lot of verses, it'll introduce a topic in Genesis, and like Corey just alluded to, you'll jump to John or Proverbs, and it'll bring up that exact same topic that same theme, and it acts just like if you're on the internet and you have one of those little links that's in blue and you click on it, it takes you to a Facebook page, you click on it, it takes you to an email, whatever, it does the exact same thing. You click on that verse in John and it takes you right back to Genesis. You click on that verse in Proverbs, it takes you right back to, to Genesis. So as we then get into these days and start pointing out some themes, keep those themes in mind because they are going to become very important later on. So in verse three, it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Lots of stuff packed in there. Corey, what do you think? This is such beautiful writing. This is such a captivating intro to a book, right? And uh, it, it's just um, amazing, but also theologically deep you know, God creating light. That's the, that's the first thing that he creates. That's something that Jesus calls himself, um, referring back to this in other places. And we're going to see the other days kind of follow on just the pattern that we see here. God speaks and creates, and he calls it good. Yeah, and, and as we get into this too, like Corey already pointed out, God is taking a world that is in a state of disorder and making it 
orderly. And that is kind of this Hebrew idea of what it means to create. So it's not strictly creation in the sense that we as Westerners necessarily would think of it. So we get in verse one, like we already talked about, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep, uh, the earth being formless and void. In Hebrew, that's tohu favohu. That means uh, that it's just not quite structured yet. And so the first thing he does is he creates light, and then he separates that light from the darkness, which is the proverbial chaos. So as each step in the the seven-day account unfolds, we really get this picture that the land and the blessing become the main theme. So let's go ahead and pay attention to the idea of land and blessing as we move forward. So we got the light. So everything that we're, we're thinking of now is basically separating what is chaotic with that which is necessary for life on the land, which is, in this sense, the light. Yes, let's keep that separating uh, aspect in mind, and let's go on to the next day, uh, which is verse 6. I'll read. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. Some of your uh, translations might say sky. And there was evening, and there's morning the second day. All right, so again, we have God speaking and God separating. There's evening and morning the second day. Anything else you want to talk about, Dylan? Uh, I'll just point out once again, we get this idea that he is separating the proverbial waters of the sea, as we already saw, represented this chaotic idea. So the other waters then are then going to, in some sense, represent something that's going to be uh, an antithesis to that chaos. Um, So we're going to go ahead and keep moving on and seeing how, once again, the chaos is being kind of moved over to the side to allow for the the unchaotic, the the perfectly created order to then take precedence and center stage. Yeah, verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now that almost sounds like a complete day of creation, but day three actually goes on. Um, So kind of breaking our form here. So verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Okay, so I kind of pointed it out there while I was reading, but we still see it separating happening, but God, he kind of pulls a double on us. He separates water from land, so we have dry land up here, and then he wants to go and and put shrubbery on the land. He, He wants to make plants and notice the language he, he focuses a lot on fruit trees bearing fruit and talking about their seed 
believe it or not, those are going to have some uh, a lot of theological impacts. So this is the first time now that we actually see the land appearing. So again, like I said, the land is going to be a central theme in this idea of separating the chaotic from the orderly, where the land then is going to take on this theme of that which is orderly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, let's keep moving now. Um, so now, so days one and three were settings that were made. So um, you have day one making light and darkness, which is a, um, essentially out of space. Like you, we're going to have um, day four filling in like tangible things to that setting. So it's almost like characters being added to the setting. So day four is almost think of it like it, as a completing day one. And day two talks about the oceans and the waters on earth and then the waters up above and focusing on the sky. So day five is going to fill creatures in the sky and in the waters. And then day three talks about sea and dry land and vegetation. So day six is going to focus on filling the land. Okay, so yeah, I just want to throw that out there. Days four through six fill the settings that were made days one through three. So now let's look at day four together, which starts in uh, verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be signs for seasons. This translation is kind of a bummer. What, what's uh, the idea the author is really trying to get across here is signs for the appointed times. So God is actually connecting um, this word, which is also seen in Leviticus, which is um, the feast day. So God cares about setting up the sun, the moon, the stars, so that the people, his covenant people, will know his date day, right? It's like, don't, don't miss your appointment or don't miss your date with me. Let these serve as signs for that. And so I'm going to continue at the end of verse 14. Um, I'm going to repeat that and let them be for signs of appointed times and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, which is the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, which is the moon and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Dylan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's just wild to me how these days connect with one another, how the author has set up this literary structure to point day one to day four, day two to day five, day three to day six. That That's just kind of crazy to me how that it works like that. So like Corey said, you have in day one, the creation of like God said, let there be light. And there was light. He separates it from the darkness. And now we get the sun and the moon. Like Corey pointed out, it's, it's vitally important that the sun and the moon are there because they serve as signs for date days, as Corey said, signs for the, the people to actually be able to fulfill the covenant that's soon going to be 
explicated in Exodus uh, 19. It's focusing again on that main theme of the land and the blessing that is going to come on those who inhabit the land, namely humans that we're going to see. So the sun and the moon then aren't created to be the sun and the moon. They're not even created to be light. Instead, they're created to be signs so that those who inhabit the land can actually fulfill that which God has asked them to do. Yeah, and that, that's a beautiful point. Um, just God's intention and design. Like we already saw on day one, there was already light. They didn't necessarily need it. So you slow down and, and read the details, like how it's worded, and you'll see God's intention, right? And so, again, we're, we're focusing on what God's intention, what the author's intention is with these words. So notice we're, we're not talking about our earth, our young earth versus old earth. Um, let's continue to just see the details that God's trying to bring out that are big. Um, and so let's get into the fifth day, verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. Now, I really appreciate what the uh, English Standard Version has done here, where they actually included the word across. Uh, that word expanse is a bit interesting that we're going to start to see because it's the word rakia uh, in Hebrew, uh, and it is translated in other translations perhaps a bit better as vault. It's it's a solid object. Uh, we often think of that as the sky, um, but that's again, it's it's just kind of showcasing the fact that the author really isn't trying to set up a scientific narrative here, but is instead trying to get you to focus on key thematic elements so that you can then further understand the story once you get to the uh, the Sinai covenant and beyond. Carrying on in verse 21, it says, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, and that is going to be the fifth day. Uh, now, uh, some stuff that immediately stands out to me in this particular passage is this is the first time where we get life that isn't vegetation. This is animal life. Mm. And at this point now, we are getting slowly more complicated in our understanding of what it means to have the dry land separated from the sea. We have vegetation on it, but now we have a new form of life that's actually able to multiply after its kind that's actually charged to be fruitful and multiply to fill the waters and the sea. The creatures now are acting as the characters that are populating the stage or the set on the stage that's really getting ready for something monumental that we're going to see. Yeah, I think you hit it. There's just something that I really want to talk about, and it's not even that important. But look at verse 21, the great sea creatures. That word is actually like a dragon, like a sea monster. It's why it's there. I don't know, but I just think it's so cool that it's there and so funny that our 
Bible translators wanted to tame that down because that's only used to talk about serpents and dragons. Like, it's like almost like what, more so what Job has in mind of talking about the Leviathan. So, um, do I have anything useful to add to the conversation? No. <laughs> but I just think that's so cool, and I, I, I just couldn't not say it. So, you're welcome, everyone. Fantastic. Yeah, that that definitely for this conversation. I appreciate that, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> so getting into day six, right? We're almost expecting for the same thing that happened in day three. Day three, we had that God did a little double whammy on us. He did two acts, right? So day six, if, if this is supposed to mirror day three, we should be expecting, or at least we'll, we'll look out to see if God does the same thing and, and what he wants us to focus on with this two acts of creation in one day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps in the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. That's weird. That's breaking form. Um, continuing verse 26, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit or with seed in its fruit, shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there's evening, and there's morning, the sixth day. Foof. Foof is right, Dylan. Break, break it down for us. What's going on here? Yeah, this is crazy. Yeah, like you said, this is the first time that we start to break form in such a drastic capacity. Like, we, like I mean, we've already seen a few times where, okay, something else gets added. Something is changed a little bit about this compared to how, what came before it. So, for example, with the animals that were added, we saw that, okay, now that they're able to multiply according to their kind, they're charged to multiply according to their kind. But then God's saying, let us make man in our image and, and after our likeness. And let's let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So every single thing that we've seen that's been created up until this point. So everything is very, uh, I'll use a big word here, anthropocentric. That is, everything is really hinging on this big reveal moment. Everything is being put in place so that when we get to this point in this 
this story so far, we're going, aha, that is why everything is the way that it is, because the land is really centric. The land gets pulled from the chaos as a place, the stage, like Corey said, that the characters are then being put onto. And now the pinnacle of all the characters are being brought onto the stage and the props of the stage are acting such that they are there for the benefit of these characters, these human characters. And so, for example, like we already saw, the sun and the moon, they're not put there to be, you know, a star and a rocky thing that orbits the Earth. No, they're put there to be means by which these creatures are now able to discern the covenant that, that they're going to have with the Creator. We have now seen that they, these people that are put here, these humans, are now going to be given charge over every other thing that God has created such that they are supposed to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. So every single thing has been building to this point of culmination where you get these characters that burst onto the stage and you're supposed to go, wow. That was what I was waiting for. That was what everything that was that was before it was building to. And everything was actually designed and put there and moved from a state of chaos to order for these creatures or these these humans that, that are above the creatures. Yeah. And um, yeah, truly amazing. And remember, we talked about day three. God did two things, right? He brought up the land and then second act put vegetation on it and with that vegetation really focused in on bearing fruit and so day six the completing of day three as dylan talked about the first act was animals just the beasts of the ground and then humans and with humans like dylan said a bunch of crazy things happen where God says, let us make man in our image. The only thing that is made in the image of God. And then that thing that was made in God's image, this creation is given rule, is given dominion over ever, other aspects of creation. Um, it's amazing. And so part of that though, part of that design even, you know, going back to comparing the land and the trees, to the animals and humans, um, humans are talked about as bearing fruit. He uses the same imagery for people. So now, um, as we've seen a few times in just the first chapter, the author is giving us interpretation clues. All right, here, look at what I'm doing. This is how you should interpret scripture. So he's comparing people to plants. And if you guys are familiar um, with people being like plants, I know a really popular one is like John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Or in Galatians chapter five, it says, bear fruit. And a lot of people think like, wow, Paul, that's a great analogy you just thought of out of your own head. But Paul doesn't come up with anything on his own. He borrows everything, all of his images from the Old Testament. This one starts at the very beginning of the story. And so we have this interpretation key. People are, are like plants. They are seed-bearing plants. 
um, something that we'll see throughout Genesis now when it talks about offspring. Offspring is such a huge part of Genesis. Offspring is just the same word, seed, right? So the offspring of Abraham, Zeraz, the same seed, when it says, you know, that these plants, their seed, their zera is in their fruit. So humans, their seed is in their fruit. Be fruitful, multiply, produce life. Be like God in this way, a God who makes life produce life yourself. Um, now, something that we don't want to talk about too much this week, we're going to get into a lot next week. This idea that God says, let us make man in our image. And so next week's podcast is going to really focus on what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Um, and so th there's tons of that. J just in the first chapter, quickly, we see that to have dominion and to create life like God. We'll, we'll go into really unpacking that next week. But Dylan, what's up with the weird um, voice change, perspective change, then God says, let us. He, he's talking to an audience here. What's going on with that? There has been a lot of debate over what this means. A lot of people who are very vehement about not seeing the Trinity, in particular in the Old Testament, will absolutely deny that this is having any sort of conversation between the Godhead and even some well-meaning Christians who absolutely would affirm the traditional doctrine of the Trinity even go so far as to say that this particular passage is not a reference to the Trinity as such, but instead God talking in and amongst the divine council, uh, which is something that we're going to be acquainted with very soon. I'm of the disposition, I don't know about you, Corey, that this is absolutely an indication of God speaking in and amongst the Trinity, as Corey has already alluded to with verses 1 through 3, we already see a picture of the Trinity there with God the Father, the Spirit hovering over the water, God saying, using the what John all come to call the divine logos to draw creation into existence through the speech acts. Um, and that then John will go to show is Jesus. So we already see the Trinity there. It makes complete sense to me to suggest then that since the, that is already the first introduction to the Trinity, this isn't even that. This is just building on that idea that's already established in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Uh, moreover, when God says, let us make man in our image, that is suggesting a singular image. The divine council, for example, like we'll come to uh, find, is uh, spiritual beings that were created by God, but nowhere in the text does it suggest that these spiritual beings have the image of God in the same capacity that humans do, unless this was maybe referring to the divine council. But I think that that's a little bit of a stretch in my mind. It makes much more sense to say that we are in the image of God singular, who is triune in nature. So, Corey, what do you think? I am very much with Dylan here. This, this, is, this has got to be Trinitarian. Um, and I've, I've heard so many scholars put in their commentaries that, oh yeah, this is the host of heaven, because um, for whatever reason, scholarship, and this is something that's started happening like 250, 300 years ago, they start pulling away from that 
perspective um, that we said the first verse invites us into, this faith one, right? So we need to have faith. And so a lot of scholars start pulling away from faith. Um, they start pulling away from Trinity where it says or may not say things. Um, it's not so clear yet, so let's just say host. Um, but here's the thing. Like Dylan said, host is not even mentioned. There's no talk about angels yet. But the Trinity has been brought up, verses 1 through 3. God, Spirit, the Word. We already talked about that. So the Trinity has been talked about. Not as clearly as we might like or as you know, Paul talks about or as Jesus talks about it. So we have the Trinity present. We don't have any sort of biblical host present. Um, also, something that Dylan and I talked about um, last week is that we never hear that the host of heaven is made in God's image. So by saying to the host of heaven, if, if that's what God was saying, let's make man in our image. That means we would have to be made in the image of the host of heaven as well, because the host of heaven shares an image with God. But the problem with that is we, as humans, are the only thing talked about as redeemable. That this plan that sets off in the beginning and, and um, is culminated and hits its climax through the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection... That death for our sins was for people, not the host of heaven. So why do we bring them up? And also, nowhere else in Scripture, no other author talks about what it means for us to be made in the image of a host, right? And no other commentator dares to defend that point. They don't ever say, what does it mean to be made in the image of a cherubim? They don't. They only talk about, all right, let's talk about imago Dei, which is the Latin term. Let's talk about what it means to be made in the image of God. And I was like, okay, which one do you want, scholars, the scholarly world? Do you want to say it's God and angels? Or are you saying we're made in the image of God? You can't say both. And that's just the lack of um, continuity of logic that you have to hold to um, propose that view is really frustrating. And I feel like um, it's kind of careless. And so if you look through... Um, th this is now above my pay grade, but I read some works of guys who look at the history of interpretation. And you look at the guys who bring up these interpretations, they're just not the kind of guys who I want to be following and modeling my life after. Um, usually these guys, like they, they branch into the atheistic, the postmodern branch, the deconstructionist branch of things even. Um, where you have the, the solid Christian guy saying, no, we're made in the image of God. Father, Son, and Spirit are there in the beginning. So, yeah, it's sad to see, um, you know, scholars who I really respect get thrown off like that because they, they bring up a good point in which that there's so much in which we under-realize and are underwhelmed by the spiritual world and spiritual creatures. And I'd say, yes, that's true. We have much more to learn. But that does not mean passages that are not clear are about spiritual creatures, right? So my last statement is verses 26 and 27. Who God is talking to here is not clear. So if you're going to default to one, why not default to the Trinity, especially because they were already introduced in the first three lines of Scripture was uh, my vehement 
<laughs> ranting good there, Dylan. <laughs> yeah, you listeners, you can bet, though, uh, when we get to next week, there will be more ranting on this for sure. Um, anyway, uh, let's finish up here real quick. Uh, we are slowly running out of time. Uh, we'll go into day seven, and we'll probably hit on this a little bit more next week. But we have seen now that days one through six really coincide with one another. And then day seven comes up. So chapter two, uh, you'll have to remember that as we go through the biblical text, we might make divisions that are a little bit different than the English translation of the Bible makes with their chapter divisions. And that you'll just have to understand that the the chapter divisions were put in much later than the text they, they're not included in the text, nor are the verses included in the text. They're great for referencing, but most of the time, they're pretty good at dividing up the text well in general, but every yeah. now and then, they are off by a verse or 12. Uh, so <laughs> Here it's only is, three, though. It's only three here. <laughs> this is one of those instances where it, 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 it would probably be best for chapter two to start at verse four, the day uh, for for uh, the seventh day uh, should probably be included in chapter one. So we're going to include it here. It says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And again, that's, that's not talking about expressly divine beings. Corey used the word host. I wanted to point that out there. So the heavens and the earth were finished and everything that was in them that was going to populate them is there. And on the seventh day, God finished his work uh, that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It's going to be a big word because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So now we see the culmination of this idea from being made uh, of God creating from a state of chaos to a state of order. Things are now orderly. God has created and made that which he has for the benefit of man. And now he is going to bless man. He's going to bless the seventh day, and he is going to make that day holy. Yeah, this is the first use of the word. And let's just look at how it's used. All right, if we're, we're going to try to define it by the Bible's terms, what does the Bible do? And it's, well, it's this recording what God did, and God separated the seventh day. So there's this idea that holy um, separates something unto God, right? It's almost like vowing it or promising it to Him, which is something separate, but um, kind of helpful to think of it that way. So the seventh day is holy to God, and this rest is something that is set apart to be holy. So we have this idea of holiness separating what is common. In this case, uh, Genesis 1's case, um, that which is common is the work in which God did. And day seven is holy to rest, right? And so now, um, one last tidbit. We see a break in the pattern of creation days. So with each day, God creates, and all those day 70, it's not really a creating, he's resting from it. But besides that, there is no day and night, the seventh day. 
So uh, that's something to keep in mind. That's something that the author is, I think, doing intentionally, saying this day seven rest hasn't come yet. And so let's go into the rest of the story asking, okay, when is this day seven actually going to, uh, when are we going to see that? And so all that to say, again, we, we walk away with, um, humanity made in God's image. What all does that mean? It sure as heck doesn't mean made in the host of heaven. <laughs> if you want to find out what it does mean, come next week. Um, but just look at the inherent structure. There, there's even more in which we can go into. Um, but this structure is here in the creation narrative, but there's so much structure that God puts intentionally into his word. Um, now, this is something um, that I first uh, noticed in high school. I noticed that God was separating in each day. And as I went on it to learn more, I was like, oh, yeah, there, day one through three is just the first half, and four through six completes it. And so um, on your own reading, if you didn't catch that, um, don't just look to us like, oh, yeah, what else can they teach me? But just know that through um, depending on God's spirit to uh, interpret and through humble and careful reading of the text, you can see God's intention. You can see the structure in which he put into his text. Um, so that that's my um, last note and farewell. Yeah, thanks, Corey. Um, I wanted to point out that the Bible is a book, like we've already talked about. This is Further illustrating that point, we have now gone into it and started to see how the author, that is the human author, and then uh, in turn God, has structured the narrative, like Corey said, to really point out key themes, key narrative elements that are really supposed to be drawn to your attention. Like Corey said, I would encourage you to go through the text, read it carefully for yourself. Don't rely on us to tell you what it says, but really read the text for yourself. Ask what is the text actually trying to say? What is the text trying to do? You can actually get at this stuff for yourself and you don't have to be a scholar to do it. Your first read through, it really should be you acquainting yourself with the text. Don't bother going outside of the text because as soon as you do that, you remove yourself from the narrative world. So instead, really acquaint yourself with the text, ingrain yourself in the narrative world, see what it has to uh, has to say. And, and then once you get comfortable doing these, these Bible study methods that we're talking about here, then you can go ahead and, uh, and start asking what other people are saying on these subjects as well. Okay, now let's go ahead and, uh, and we'll end the podcast here. You can find us now on Facebook. That is at Scripture Chronicles on Facebook. Uh, you can also email us now. The email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. If you have a question, please feel free to send it in. Uh, we're going to be doing Q&A sessions periodically throughout the podcast, and we would love uh, if you would send in your questions and allow us to answer them on the podcast. Also, uh, we are now on iTunes. We are now on uh, Google Play Podcasts. If you guys enjoy the show and wouldn't mind throwing down a good review on iTunes, that drastically helps us out, gets us seen. Also, if you want to toss a, a review on 
Podbean, uh, where our podcast is hosted. That is great too. We're going to be jumping on more podcast portals. Look for us soon on Spotify as well. And we uh, got a website coming soon for you guys. So a whole bunch of awesome stuff is in the pipeline. We're going to be jumping back in next week in Genesis, continuing the story. Thank you guys for tuning in and have a good night or morning or afternoon or whatever time it is over there. Beautiful. Yeah, thanks guys. Have a good whatever part of the day you're in. (laughs) 